welcome to today's episode of In Fellowship, the podcast where we explore community building through a chapter-by-chapter read of The Lord of the Rings. My name is Ellen. And my name is Anna. And in today's episode, we're discussing Book 1, Chapter 9, The Prancing Pony, exploring how community is built through inclusion. Ellen, we've made it past Tom Bombadil. How are you feeling? Hallelujah! Wow. (laughs) So you'd say that you're very excited. This was the first week where I was bummed that we weren't doing more reading. I was like, wow, I would love to keep reading. This was a great chapter. Excited to see what comes next. Mm -hmm. Because Tom's not there and the hobbits are like actually out doing things now. Mm-hmm. Besides, like, acid trips. <laughs> right. Yes. I, when, as I was reading for this chapter, my boyfriend came and sat next to me, and he's seen the movies, but he's never read the books. And he was reading over my shoulder and said, oh, is this the scene when they're in the bar? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, but you've been doing so many episodes. Yep. How are you only at the scene where they're in the bar? A fair question. <laughs> yes. And I was like, in the movie... You know, there's a lot of haste, and they need to move quickly. Things happen. In the books, we hang around for, like, a year. There's a birthday party or two. It's very chill. And um, he was he was surprised to learn that. Mm-hmm. That is actually a great point, because I was reading this chapter, and it occurred to me that I was not clear what amount of time had passed from them originally leaving the Shire and all of the hullabaloo, really, in the old forest to then get them to the Prancing Pony, because it feels like there was such haste to book it out of the Shire, and then an you know, indeterminate amount of time passed, and now we're at the Prancing Pony. It's like, how is anybody going to meet up with this group? How is anybody keeping track of this group? Like, what is, where, when is it now? I have no idea. Well, at the end of the last chapter, Frodo says, quote, I suppose we haven't lost more than two days by my shortcut through the forest, but perhaps the delay will prove useful. It may have put them off our trail. But I think they spent more than two days in the forest. Frodo thinks it was only two days, but they had that whole afternoon with Tom when they weren't sure how much time had passed at all. So I I think he's underestimating their delay. I agree. And there were at least two incidents where time was unclear. So both the afternoon conversation with Tom Bombadil and then the amount of time he spends in the Barrow Whites, I think, also was unclear to me. So to estimate that as only two days, I mean, we're saying that the Old Forest, meeting Tom, meeting, getting to Tom's house, meeting Goldberry, all of the events that happen at Tom's house, including, like, the three meals, the storytelling, bathing, all that kind of stuff... Then leaving Tom's house, getting trapped in the Barrow Whites, singing to have Tom visit. Tom goes to get the additional six ponies that run away. And then to come together and get to the road is two days? That doesn't feel correct to me. Or maybe what Frodo means is that it was only two additional days 
to how long it would have taken if they had just walked on the road. Mm, I think you're right. I think that is the intention of that statement. So again, that brings us back to square one. How much time was spent? Who knows? <laughs> there And there's literally no way to know because we know at least from the conversation with Tom that they they themselves are not clear on the amount of time that passed for that storytelling, for that engagement. So it's it's a mystery. It's a mystery, um, but I'm ready to put all of that behind us and really move on and get to some good old plot points. <laughs> Agreed. And we are, like, literally, I'm holding the book in my hand right now, and we're in basically the middle of the first of the three books. Mm-hmm. So that was, there was a lot of lead up to this moment. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I'm not quite sure what we learned from that other than like world building. So that's a very curious choice for me thinking about Tolkien as an author. Like what are we meant to glean from here? We we get some world building and we maybe also get some insight to characters, but not as much as you'd expect for again how much time we've spent with these characters already. I don't want to spoil anything. I don't know, are we a spoily podcast? It doesn't matter. I think this might make the conclusion all the more well-earned that we have spent so much time with the hobbits and essentially their childhood that when things come full circle at the end it's all the more satisfying fully agree well with that let's go ahead and move into today's story do you have a story prepared for us today about the theme of inclusion and how one can build community with it? Yes. So as you know, I was kind of thinking about this this chapter, this topic in a couple of different ways. And really what I kept coming back to was a moment in a previous position that I held. I had a mentor who really challenged uh, myself and and people that they they worked with to become more intentional practitioners, like to really think about people that you're seeking to serve and how best to reach those individuals because interventions created without those you're seeking to serve in mind often fall short. And so as I was thinking about this conversation, I remembered her challenging me to think about the physical space that I worked in and to think about what the experience of coming into that space would look like from the eyes of someone who needed services from either the building I worked in or my office in particular and what it would mean for them to navigate the space and find it. And so basically what I did is I tried to imagine what it would be like to be a new person coming into this building and what what would be the first thing that they see. And I worked in a newer building at the time, so it was a very almost clinical setting where there were very few things in the hallways. The first thing you do is you come into like an elevator bay. You get into an elevator. The offices that are on each floor are listed outside of the elevator, not in the elevator. So you kind of have to know who you're looking for if you're not sure. There isn't a clear front desk to ask. You'd have to get in those elevators, come up to the floor you need, Then there's usually some form of a front desk, but there are a lot of closed doors. It was very hushed, very quiet. There's no art on the walls. Um, And so it just felt like a very intimidating space to enter. 
And I've done now this exercise in other places that I've either visited or other places that I've worked. Um, and so in our current space where I'm working now, there is a little bit more vibrancy to the space, a little more humanity maybe that's discernible as you walk into the space. But one of the things that's been particularly challenging is that on the wall, we have a group of people who have led our organization, and every single one of them shares two major characteristics. They are all, almost all male, aside from one, and they are almost all white, except for one. And that space is a space you have to walk past as you are often in like a very challenging moment and needing to access pretty critical services to get there. And it just reminds me that that probably doesn't help someone to feel welcome to look at this very austere wall of people who are not in their same need of services and how that might make a person feel really hesitant about accessing services within our building. So um, one of the things that then I've really tried to do within my own workspace is to really develop a space that feels safe and comfortable for people who may need to access me, but aren't in my office all the time. So I really try and put up a lot of posters in different languages to make sure that I'm engaged in training that helps me understand my own covered spots as a practitioner, to really put up some soft, gentle reminders on the wall, like you deserve to take up space and a lot of people who look different than I do to make sure that the, the space feels engaging and feels comfortable for folks to come and have a conversation with me. And in the hopes of doing that, really make sure that, you know, the core of what I'm trying to do through my position is accessible to people both who look like me and experience life the same way that I do or similarly and people who don't. So it's a less defined story than I usually have and I think that there were a lot of really interesting components in this chapter that reminded me of that same thought exercise. Is that something that you've ever been asked to do through maybe your work or something that you've noticed uh, as you move through the world? So I, I am an event planner. That is my day job. And so most of my job is to make people feel welcome and to plan for everyone who attends the event to feel as though they're welcome and we want them to be there. But I'm thinking of a lot of the offices that I've visited or have worked in in the past that are not meant to feel welcoming and they're meant to be intimidating and be a little bit grand and austere in order to remind everybody of the importance and the money that is spent here. And so I think there, there are many times in life where it's clear if you are meant to be here or not, and if the people want to welcome you there or not, based on what is hanging on the walls. There, there have been a lot of venues that I've worked at that are very clearly built for some people and not for others. And I do think about that a lot. What I think is exciting too, and, and we'll talk a little bit about it through the book, is that in a space that you occupy either professionally or personally, often you have the ability to really set the tenor for what that space looks like. And so I was really reminded of that as I read as I read this chapter and as I thought about this very curious space where many different 
groups coexist, if not peacefully, at least pretty tolerantly. And I was very curious as to how I could do a better job of embedding that expectation into spaces that I occupy and where I've been previously in my life where I felt really welcomed and why I felt that way. And did everybody have that same experience? I'm also thinking in moments where I have felt either welcome or not, it's been about the space and who's welcoming there, but it's also been about how I'm dressed and am I dressed in a way that matches other people? So when when we're talking about in this chapter about all of the different folks coming in who look different from each other, like they are different species of being, I am happy that they have this like shared community and this shared identity of living in Brie that allow them to come together even though they look different. Well, I think that maybe is a is a opportunity to segue into what exactly happened in today's chapter. Yes, so we meet our hobbits after leaving Tom Bombadil, and then they have an ominous chat with the gatekeeper, and the hobbits go into Bree, into the Prancing Pony, followed by a shadow that slips unseen over the wall. Who is the shadow? What is the shadow? We don't know right now. They make it to the Prancing Pony, and they are very much included. They have special rooms for hobbits that are lower on the ground floor, round doors, etc., to make them feel welcome. And after settling in, they go to the main bar room area to chat with the other patrons. Pippin gets a little loose-lipped and is really enjoying his time with the drink and with the other patrons. We meet Strider, and as Pippin is about to perhaps divulge something he should not, Frodo decides to distract the patrons by jumping on a table and singing a song about a cow, a dish, a spoon, and the moon. However, he then spooks everybody with his disappearing act when he falls off the table and somehow the ring in his pocket ends up on his finger. Some people who are described as ill-favored go off into the night muttering over this disappearing act and how unsavory it was. And then the chapter ends with Strider and Barlevin Butterbur, which is just an exceptional name, both requesting a private word with Frodo in his rooms. I am so excited to talk about Strider. Strider! Strider! <laughs> I have it in my notes when Frodo goes to talk to Strider, just yay in all caps with an (laughs) exclamation point because I'm so fascinated. I mean, a a medium spoiler alert, as we learn in in the first part of the chapter, right, we know that the rangers are kind of their own group, like they're men plus, which I think is kind of a funny way of describing it. But I am so excited to talk about Strider, the ranger, and that whole community, because I find them fascinating. They are one of my favorite groups in the books. And Strider is the one who slips over the wall, right? I believe so, but I don't know that we'll know that for sure until after potentially the next chapter. Okay. I couldn't remember. I thought it was him. But then it seemed as if he had already been 
well settled into the inn. And I'm like, wait, how did he get there so quickly and begin to lean so nonchalantly in the corner if he came in after the hobbits? But, you know, he's a ranger. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah, and it's it's unclear, like, if that shadowy figure coming over the fence is coming into this space for the first time, or potentially if Strider has settled into the inn, is returning knowing that the hobbits are on the road and that he kind of followed them into the space. Very unclear. All right, that he's been sort of looking out for them, which we know he has been. Mm-hmm. Or we will, we will soon know that he has been. It's definitely alluded that he's at least paying attention and knows... And he knows some of the story, some of the experiences of the Hobbits leading up till this point. But it's very unclear. And Frodo is very casual, I would say, about this complete stranger knowing as much as he does about their traveling group. And knowing Frodo's real name. Mm-hmm. And Frodo, terrible poker player that he is, does not remember... <laughs> that he needs to not respond to that name. He's only been Mr. Underhill for, like, three hours. But honestly, he has got to pull it together a little bit, Frodo. Remember, you in danger. So you're gonna have to be more careful about acknowledging your actual name. Yeah, he's uh, he's not at his best, really, in this chapter. I do admire that he gets so into the story that he begins to act it out and leaps... <laughs> too vigorously as the cow over the moon on the table Mm -hmm. you know you gotta you gotta respect the art and he is really going all in in this moment so i appreciate that but i am talking about strider and how he's pretty actively excluded from the other patrons at the bar Mm -hmm. i'm excited to get into more of the the meat of today's discussion Mm -hmm. so what examples do you have of today's theme in this chapter at the Prancing Pony. Right. So a couple examples right off the bat as we come into the as we come into Bree and we learn a bit more about Bree land. It sounds like a very metropolitan area in that it's off a major thoroughfare. And so the Bree folk have to sort of coexist. Right away it talks about that Bree folk view each other their various groups, potential species differences, as contributing equally to the land, but they kind of mind their affairs in their own way. Um, And I thought that was just a really interesting tolerant, uh, perhaps to put it mildly, that these, these groups are willing to both coexist and also to acknowledge the contributions of these, these other in-groups, while also kind of just managing their own affairs. So it's not like they're intermingling. And so I was very curious about that as a reality. And then along those same lines as well, we learn that Brie stands at a major crossroads that previously was more traveled, now perhaps lesser, less so. And so I was thinking and wanted to ask, what role do you think proximity plays in inclusion, knowing that Brie stands on this this well-traveled road? I think the location is absolutely maybe the most important. The Shire is very insular and insulated from the outside world. We know that there is a forest blocking them in, there is water blocking them in, and that they have not branched out and think 
poorly even of these other hobbits living in Bree. So the fact that Bree is at this thoroughfare and that it is open to travelers, it is physically open to travelers coming through, I think that really plays a part in the fact that everybody there is able to coexist relatively peacefully as an interspecies town. Yes, and it's so interesting that there are hobbits there who may otherwise share a lot of characteristics of the hobbits that live in Buckland or that live in the Shire, and yet it feels like there's a very clear split in both groups as they perceive one another, right? Like, the hobbits in Buckland are maybe a little suspicious of those that live in Bree, and Bree hobbits aren't quite on the same vibe or wavelength as those who live in the Shire, that they are so physically distanced, and so there is some, like, potential dispute, maybe, about who is, like, the oldest settlement of hobbits. And I found that to be very curious as well, because um, the hobbits seem to be better meshing with those other Brelanders than other hobbits. And I thought that was a very sort of curious side effect of being included in this community. Right, like, there's less competition between the Bree hobbits and the Bree men than between the Buckland and the Shire and the Bree hobbits. Right. So then the next example that I saw, because there are hobbits present in this space and potentially hobbits traveling to Bree, at least in in older days, that the hobbits arrive at the inn and there is a room especially made for hobbits. And so the innkeeper kind of says like, oh, you know, we're all booked up, but fortunately we have this hobbit room that's really designed with you in mind, and so here's a place for you to stay. And I thought that was just such a lovely, like, even though the maybe foot traffic is less to this inn of hobbits from, you know, further communities, that this room still remains, and that they're still willing to hold it for hobbits. And I thought that was a really cool acknowledgement as a part of the physical structure of this inn. It's a cool acknowledgement, and it's also just good business sense. Mm -hmm. Like, if you know that you're going to be welcome somewhere and that your needs are going to be catered to without you needing to ask for special accommodations, you're going to pick to go there. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's cool, too, because the gatekeeper, like, right away says and acknowledges that they're not from there, right? So he already kind of has this ability to identify folks, where they're coming from, maybe acknowledge that their needs may be different. Um, And so again, just kind of creating this space, even though the gatekeeper is a little shady, that there is some acknowledgement and some skill level around interacting with folks who aren't from exactly Breland, which I don't think we'd find in the Shire or in Buckland, which I think is really cool. Yeah, the other hobbits would not be as welcoming. That's right. So then we get into the bar itself, right? And there is a description of all of the folks that are in the bar. On page 175, it says, The company was in the big common room of the inn. The gathering was large and mixed, and Frodo discovered when his eyes got used to the light. It describes that a little bit. And then it says, Barleyman Butterbur, again, a great barman's name great name was standing near the fire talking to a couple of dwarves and one or two strange looking men on the benches were various folk men of brie a collection of local hobbits sitting and chattering together and a few more dwarves and other vague figures difficult to make out away in the shadows and the corners 
As soon as the Shire Hobbits entered, there was a chorus of welcome from the Brelanders. And then the strangers, especially those who had come up the Greenway, stared at them curiously. So there is kind of this not quite uh, Cheers-esque, everybody knows your name, but that there is this very seemingly welcoming atmosphere to these outsiders as a in where there are many travelers that need to to coexist together and that the space is really one of like hey oh my gosh welcome sit down have a drink like hang out and it doesn't quite seem as suspicious as maybe later it's uncovered that that some folks do hold a little bit of that towards these outsiders i wonder what the connection there is with curiosity because it seems like the people who are there who are locals are mainly interested to learn about you know what these hobbits are traveling for do you have any news from the shire and i feel like there's probably something there about needing to be authentically curious about other people in order to make them feel included yes i agree i think you know if you come into a space with too many preconceived notions, not an open heart and open mind, I think really then what you're looking for is to quickly either categorize or dismiss the person you're encountering instead of thinking more broadly about like, tell me about what brought you here and and tell me about yourself. And, you know, you kind of get to this seeking to understand authenticity brought to a conversation instead of just "Mm, I don't know you I don't like you I'm just gonna drink my beer quietly at the end of the bar yeah I think that's right and then the last example um, which we just touched on really is that there are news of more people fleeing the issues elsewhere in Middle Earth are predicted to end up in Breland and then the Brelanders are unenthused So I was also really curious about this theme of welcoming those who are temporary, but now that there's this potential um, movement or migration of individuals who may be more permanent in Breland, that potentially Brelanders are not as excited about welcoming those folks into this space. And I was curious to know, like, how do you think about that interaction where there is sort of this permissive either amount of diversity which people are comfortable with and then a threshold at which they're no longer comfortable or that the temporary nature of a person's stay is permitting them to be more acceptable in that space by those who are there all the time. It reminds me of the the phrase NIMBY. Are you familiar with that? Not in my backyard. Yes, not in my backyard. It reminds me of the not in my backyard people, of which there are a lot all over the world, but I can only speak to New York because that's where I live right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people are happy to think, oh, wow, there's going to be rent controlled apartments or we're going to, you know, build some more affordable housing. That's great. And then they learn that the development is in their neighborhood and that is now unattractive to them. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what this reminds me of. And that we're excited sort of in the abstract of people coming by, having news, giving us business, and then floating out again. But when we think about the actual work of integrating somebody into your community who is different from you, that enthusiasm is out the window. 
I had I had a very similar response where, um, you know, where I live, there is a lot of we care about our community and we want neighbors to know neighbors, but there's also this kind of undercurrent of like, but only neighbors that we already know. Like any person who is new, I think there's a little less excitement about like, mm, but does that mean I have to change how I exist to make space for your needs or your demands or what may be different about just the way that you move through the world? Is that going to come and impact me? And it feels a lot more fear-based. And so it feels a lot more like, I think your your word of, you know, abstract is a good one, right? When, when it's in the abstract, it feels like, well, yeah, I can kind of get on board with that. But then as soon as it becomes real and practical and in application, all of a sudden you kind of see people leveraging or jockeying for, oh no, I'm from here and you are not, right? And like, where where are they going to go? How are we going to make this space? Mm, I'm not so excited about having to maybe give up or change or think differently about the community I inhabit to make you feel more comfortable to, or for you to come and sort of change the space ongoing. Yeah, I think that ties back earlier to what we were saying about curiosity and how when we move from being curious about a person to in- and what's different about them to instead being fearful about what's different in that other person, that that's sort of the dichotomy that we're seeing here. Yeah, I guess, what do you think then about how do you remain curious or remind yourself to be curious if you start to notice that bubbling of fear or maybe uncertainty as you experience someone or something new? The answer is probably somewhere in the word empathy, Mm. you know, like imagining yourself into the other person. Mm -hmm. But that's so much easier to say than to do. (laughs) Right. Well, and there are a lot of experiences that I can't imagine because they're so far removed from my own reality. So while I can be empathic to the story being told, I don't know that my imagination is a fair tool to use to understand someone else's experience because I I only have the framework that I have. So I think it's a really challenging question and I think it looks different depending on the relationship you have to the person or the person themselves, but it is one that I think we'll have to get much better at as a as a group of people, as a human group, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that's key to being able to move forward. Yeah, we want to be more like the hobbits in Bree when they first see Frodo and company. And less like the hobbits in Brie when they see that Frodo has magical powers. Right. <laughs> right. Big shift mm-hmm. in public opinion. <laughs> yes. In like, a very what? short That's time. <laughs> something new, something different, not here for it. Let's go home now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said, too, for status and tradition. You know, I... I'm thinking about the example we talked through for our chapter seven about food Mm -hmm. and how I'm trying to adapt Oma's cookie recipes to be more 
accessible to myself, certainly with my my food allergies, but also to bring new people into the tradition. And I think sometimes we get really stuck on that it's going to be different and we can't see then how to, again, creatively imagine a way to carry some of maybe that tradition or that feeling that you experienced from a tradition into a new space where someone is they've not experienced that before or you're having to think differently about its impact on others i think there's like you said there's an empathetic way to to get that work done and i think we're better for it but it definitely is the harder thing to do so the question that i came prepared to ask and i'm still mulling over my answer is can you have community without exclusion. Maybe to expand upon that a little bit more is that you need to have a group that is in in order to have a community. So can communities be truly 100% inclusive and just anybody can join or does that blur the boundaries of the community and instead you need some sort of exclusion of like that person is in the community, that person is not and this is where the line is drawn. Well, the first thing that comes to mind when you when you ask that question is exclusion feels like a very active verb. Like there is a purposeful exclusion of a person from this community space, either shared values or shared physical space itself. And so I think a community that in designing or in creating shared values, if one of those shared values is creating and actively excluding for the purpose of an outgroup, then to me that feels more like a power dynamic and less what I imagine when I think of community. But I do think that there is, if we take exclusion as a less active word and it just becomes There are shared values, there are shared spaces, there are shared experiences that create a community. Then there are people who will not have those experiences, values, or that space. And so they will become an outsider to that community. But that feels different to me than excluding them. What are your thoughts about that? I'm thinking of our four hobbits because, as we talked about, I think in chapter eight, it's easier to wrestle with some of these bigger discussions when you think about the fictional characters who are living them. And I'm thinking of good old Fatty Bulger, that he did not have the value and the desire to be in the community of the four hobbits who moved forward and sort of actively excluded himself. It wasn't Frodo saying, you can't come. It was Fatty saying, I don't want to be there. And I think that's sort of what you're talking about, where it's not somebody actively kicking another person out, but that they didn't have that shared value or that shared goal of wanting to go on an adventure with Frodo, that it's like, well, you're not in this, you're not in this group right now then. Right. And it's kind of an interesting cross-section of a community to think about values and experiences versus space. And we know that Fatty Bulger and the Four Hobbits do share some community space in that they occupy the Shire. 
there are some shared live experiences that allow them to communicate with one another. And then there is this very big distinction in values, right? Where you have people who are like, why would you ever leave the Shire? The Shire is safe. That is not something that I want to do. So I'm self-selecting out of this community that you're building. The definition of community is, is something that feels like maybe it's on a sliding scale because we do have like things that relate us to one another that might not identify another as a community member. And then there are things that help us say, oh no, this person is in community with me. And I think those two things can overlap, but I don't know that they're always the same. And when they're distinct, how do you talk about your relationship to one person and not another if one is a community member and one is not, even though you occupy the same physical space? I think I'm left with more questions than answers at this point. And I'm glad that we got a lot more chapters left because there is a lot here that we can, you know, noodle through with the hobbits as they figure out who is in their fellowship and who's not going to make this quest with them. Yeah, I'm excited to learn along with them because this feels like a big question. And I think one of the questions really why we started the podcast, trying to unravel and tease out some of these themes. So I'm excited to, to be able to do that now moving forward. Um, but actively excluding Tom Bombadil is something that I think will serve us well. Not invited. <laughs> Not, no shared values. Can't come. Yeah. Cannot. You cannot sit with us. Please leave. Thank you, Tom Bombadil. Mm. Unless you're going to bring some of that sweet cream, white bread, butter, fresh berries. Because the food spread didn't sound pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that, should we transition to today's action item? We should. So, for today's action item, I was thinking a lot about that same story I shared at the beginning. You know, really being challenged by my mentor to think more intentionally about the space that I occupy professionally to think more about inclusion and to potentially have a, a physical mark on that space or to change the space as I'm able. So one of the things that I'll ask our listeners to do is to start to notice where you spend your time Think about why you feel welcome there and would everybody feel welcome? How do you know that? And to really start to potentially change that space for the better. So who's on the walls of your school and what do they signify? And does that feel welcoming to everybody? How accessible is the space? that you enter into to go grocery shopping? Can everybody access that space? And what can you do about that? Really looking carefully at the spaces you find yourself in and to think about inclusion for yourself and for others as you're able. I love that. And I think especially around physical accessibility, if that's not something that you are experiencing or somebody that you live your life with is experiencing, it's really easy to overlook how many curbs, bumps, steps, skinny hallways there are to get around. And so I'm grateful that you're calling our attention not only to that, but just how welcoming our place is in general and who feels included and who doesn't, because it's always good to pay attention to. Today's podcast was sponsored by The Prancing Pony. Our music is by Robert Zahn and Simon Dom. 
If you have thoughts on today's episode or homework assignment, send us a voicemail or email at infellowshippodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember to take care of your community, stay hydrated, and thank you for joining us today in fellowship. All right, well, I'll kick us off here with our very happy intro. Sounds great. Hello, and welcome. That was too much. <laughs> it was too much. It was too much. Dial down. <sighs> Bring her back. She's smiling Dial too it much. back. <laughs> she sounds manic. Hello. <laughs> oh, my God. We're so happy you're here. It's great to be here. Am I having a good time? You're having a good time. We're all having a good time. I'm great. You're great. We're great. Great. <laughs> Okay, we're gonna, that was a nine. We're gonna try that again at like a six. Yeah, that's a really good call. Okay.